under 18s to refereeing with a walk down memory lane in between. Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. We'll hear from BKT, URC, head of match officials, Tapper Henning, shortly, as well as Wales's back row titans from the 70s, Derek Quinnell and Tommy David. Looking back to one of the great games 50 years ago. Catch up with the Wales Under 18s programme and head coach Richie Pugh after the programme took an enforced break for four years, the last international victory at home to France in 2019. Coming back, they finished a Six Nations series with a win over Scotland, and it was the same opposition for their first game back as well, as Pugh told Graham Gillespie. The boys' first exposure and opportunity to wear a red jersey in a fully international match, and you know, they did themselves proud, their families proud, and um, it was um, a great reflection of their hard work that they've been doing with the colleges, the schools, the RAG programme, in that uh, they got a, a nice result. You know, that, you know, the lead changed six times, and you know, we managed to come out on top at the end of it. So, um, yeah, it was a great game. You know, it was uh, a good spectacle and advert for under-18s international rugby, and yeah, a nice start. So going into that game, obviously you were aware that it was, what, four years since the last cap game. Were the boys aware of that? Because that's quite a big expectation, really, isn't it? First time a cap game on home soil in four years. Yes, we didn't. It was, it was more about the boys and understanding. You know, There was an understanding of the history before them and those that have, have worn the jersey before them. I think that's important. And you know they're obviously having the privilege and honour to wear that red jersey and to start creating their own history. So um, they were aware of that, to do it in front of their parents, friends and family. They understood the privilege that they had. You know, we've got a duty you know, to see as many boys exposed to international rugby until you're at that level. You don't know how boys are perform, and we need to build strength and depth to filter into the 19s and 20s programmes. Yeah. Um, so there's a responsibility from us to develop as many boys as possible. And um, you know, it's important that you know, we don't just... Uh, stick to the same small group is that we do expose as many boys as possible to the top level of rugby that they've earned and deserved. And there were quite a few opportunities. At the other end of the scale is a chance to remember one of the most famous games 50 years ago. The Barbarians-New Zealand match of 1973 and two of the key protagonists were back row pair Tommy David and first Derek Quinnell. This game is remembered for various things. It was all about the back row, surely. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Thank goodness it wasn't because uh, there were some magnificent players playing that day and we were very fortunate to play in a great side. Looking at the front row that we had were potentially the front row of the Lions in 71. Unfortunately, Ray McLaughlin uh, got, well, in fact, two of the props got injured. John Pullin obviously played. Bob Wilkinson came into the second row with Willie John and Tommy came into the, the back row instead of Swerve on the morning of the match. And then, of course, behind the scrum, we had some superstars. They wouldn't have been superstars in any era. So we were very fortunate to play in a very talented side. So, Tommy, when did you know you'd be playing? Um, on the Tuesday before the game, uh, I had a phone call from Catherine James, because I was playing for the Lashley at the time. He rang me up, he said, Tom, he said, um, would you be a substitute? Well, I was doing some results. I'd, I'd never been involved with the Barbarians or Wales or anybody at all. And of course, on the morning of the game, Swerve dropped out through uh, flu. So all of a sudden, I was in, in the biggest game of my life. 
got to understand this. When you're in the changing room, then you're, you're looking at obviously there's Slattery, Gibson, Willie John McBride. It was incredible. Yeah. David Deckham. But the incredible thing about that game 50 years ago, it's shown so many times, people still think I'm still playing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's great sadness to this as well. Whilst life is real and it's a wonderful game and it was fantastic skills. When you look at uh, the players who are actually involved in that try, Phil Bennett, John Pullin, John Dawes, all passed away. Reality of life is, 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 yeah, it's great memories. I'm sure Derek will say the same, you know, fantastic. When you look at all the players, the quality and the skills they've had. Derek, of course, you'd been a Lion already and much more experienced international. Was there a feeling about that game going into it compared to the other things that you'd been involved in? Uh, well, there's always a feeling about games against the All Blacks, and uh, you know it's a privilege to play against them. Really. As I say, the quality of what we had in the dressing room, as Tom mentioned, that Swerve dropped out in the morning of the match, and uh, Mervyn Davis was probably one of the great rugby players for Wales and the Lions in the 70s, because he and Gareth Edwards, at eight and nine, played in the four tests in '71 and played in the four tests in 74, two successful Lions tours. And they were pivotal to what happened on both of those tours. I mean, everybody else played their part, don't get me wrong, but, but when you look back at Swerve, he was very much underrated. Uh, he was a great line-out forward. He would tackle anything that moved. He didn't always look the most skillful, but he was somebody that you loved to have in your side. So the morning of the game, uh, I think it was Mickey Steelbord just said that, Penelope said, yes, you will have to move over to number eight. He said, uh, Mervyn Davis hasn't made it, he's got flu, and uh, Tommy's coming in the flank. I said, oh, you know, Tommy played in, in the same side as me and Tinelli, and that was great. And, uh, and in fact, Tom came in and had one of those days that you'd love to have every day, where he was absolutely magnificent. And, uh, but uh, I went up to see Swerve, and he was lying in his bed, and uh, I said, Merv, how are you feeling? And he said, oh, oh, that's my fans, he said. <laughs> so I passed him his cigarettes and his, uh, and his, and his matches. Uh, and, uh, brilliant. And he, he lit it up, he's laying in bed there. I said, no, you, you sound awful. <laughs> he said, no, oh, not very good. He said, no, no, he said. My new goodness, he said, this might be a good game to miss. <laughs> when you look back over the last 50 years, it's been one of the one of the standout games of the century, really. And uh, but he was he was a talent that uh, that perhaps we didn't give him enough credit for. Now, no television match officials back in those days. What would have happened to the try if there had been? Probably the try would have been blown up when JPR the high tackle immediately. That guy would have spent 10 minutes in the bin at least. Possibly it'd been off for good, which in some instances I'm glad it didn't happen because we didn't have that applied at that time because it would have ruined the game in many respects as it does now. But apart from that, I didn't see anything in it that uh, that warranted questioning. I suppose I was referring to the pass. Hands pointing <laughs> forward, what's uh... and they ignored it altogether because uh, the referee said carry on and the tie was scored and that's the end of it and there's only one adjudicate on the field and that's the ref so I'm sure the Merck was absolutely right Do you think the title the greatest try do you think that was the greatest try ever scored in the game? Nah, it's all be, opinions isn't nah, it? Nah, there'd be lots of great tries yeah. uh, yes. at the end of the day yeah, uh, for some reason this is called the imagination I still enjoy watching it today and um, 
you know, the, the worst skill shown in the game. Right. Not only that try, but the other tries oh, as well. And a couple of the tries that the All Blacks scored with the party skillful and so the game stands the test of time so from that point of view I, you know, I can only comment on, on what we were able to achieve on the day in a game not only that game but the game itself I thoroughly enjoyed I enjoyed playing in Strandy I enjoyed playing for Wales I enjoyed playing for the Barbas and the Lions because it was a game that I enjoyed listening to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. We were talking about refereeing there, and if there's one subject that's been raised pretty constantly since William Webb Ellis first broke the rules by picking up the ball, then it's refereeing. But what about the modern-day approach? South African Tapa Henin is the head of match officials for the BKT United Rugby Championship, including looking after the league action for all four Welsh regions. And he had these answers to give on a media call. What has happened this year is we've moved on from uh, onto an independent selection committee, or panel I should call them, to review referee performance to identify key moments in the game where the referee didn't deliver a decision to expectation. It's twofold. It is to measure performance, to be accountable so that the referee can be accountable for his work on the day over the 80 minutes, but then secondly also to support and help those referee to identify those issues, but also identify with his coach how to fix and how to get better. So our selection committee is a twofold. It's not only measurement, it's not only criticizing, it's not only finding errors and mistakes, but it's also uh, a process where we would uh, support the referee in what in the decisions that was good and make sure that those are aligned to what the expectation is in URC which then in the end is, is aligned to EPCR and to World Rugby. Uh, we would like to believe that our competition is very well aligned to the expectations of World Rugby and EPCR because that's where our players are playing into EPCR, into, into a World Cup later in this year. And we cannot be different from that. So that is the function of the selection committee. And then um, the selectors also is responsible for the appointments of match officials, looking at the blog of appointments and best referees for the games that lies ahead. They have the responsibility for those appointments as a group. The selectors are all four ex-international referees with Nigel Owens from Wales, George Clancy from from Ireland, uh, myself as chairperson of that committee, Neil Patterson from Scotland, and then Stu Berry from South Africa, which also gives us a, a good connection towards World Rugby for him being responsible of the TMO development within the World Rugby environment. So we've come a long way with that. We give personal feedback after we've reviewed a game to each and every referee individually. And then we collate a performance report on that referee's performance, uh, which is generated online with the AMS system about the decision-making and the accuracy of that decision-making over 80 minutes. That was a big change for us this year, and it's working well. We are received by referees. It probably mirrors what's happening at World Rugby as well, where you have a selection committee that looks at performance and give feedback. And the independence of that selection group is hugely important so that we are not looking with too much emotion and become emotional about performance and decisions. Um, And that was the main reason for bringing that selectors group into place, that we can give a a well-balanced review of referee performance. Do you think TMOs get to see all the video. I'll give you an example. James Lowe scored a try for Ireland against France. 
Eventually, just after the try was awarded, suddenly another bit of video is discovered that shows his foot's clearly in touch. These things happen. But how much control do TMOs have on the video that they're actually accessing? And is there a potential for any home country, I'm going to say it, to pull their, um, do a little bit of helping of their own team? That is a very good question. That is probably one of the areas that is taking a lot of our energy and focus at the moment as to how do we support and, and help TMOs for many reasons. So just quickly sharing background, the TMO started in 2000. The first TMO was back in 1995 uh, in a club game in South Africa. There was, a, there was an experiment, but in the top games, international games, it started in 2000 and forever the TMO has been dependent on the broadcaster. For the technology that is used, it started off with one screen with replays. Uh, then it, uh, we added another screen. Uh, the broadcasters supplied us with another screen with a seven-second delay. You missed on the first occasion, seven-second delay. And in 23 years, that was basically the investment into TMO. And we've, we've reached the point now that we are seriously considering and looking into the technology that's available in the market to support that role so that we are not interfering, first of all, with the broadcast and their primary role to deliver a broadcast and a TMO looking for replays while the producer and the broadcasters has got a, another priority to show highlights of how the try was scored. And there's still a, a, a process of replaying and rewinding to find the right clip and the right camera angle. So it's, it's, it's quite a complex process at this stage where we very, as TMOs and as Magic are very much reliant on what the broadcasters can give us in the shortest time possible. So we are exploring, and in South Africa, they've applied some technology to find what we call the money shot, the best camera angle to make informed decision. You know, some of the internationals, and I think that international of Ireland and France that you've referred to, I think uh, it's the best part of 32, 36 camera angles that's being used but not only for the game, but also for interviews and stuff. But it's a huge production where we have to find where our roles sit. So there's a lot of work going on. Can unions influence it? I won't say unions. I would, I would just say broadcasters control what they show to the TMO at the moment and what appears on screen. Up north, we have the TMO in the broadcast van, so he has access to the camera angles and he can request that a replay being shown of a, of a specific angle. But it's not ideal. The system that's now on test in South Africa is where there's an assistant to the TMO that looks independently uh, to those replays. Do not interfere with a VTR operator, the guy that, that's responsible for showing replays in the broadcast van to take that off his hand and then request. Camera seven is the angle we would like to show to the referee that we believe is the best camera angle for the shot. And then when the broadcaster has got that in line, play it back to the referee on the big screen. Does that open up for manipulation? Yes, it does. Is it happening? I would uh, refrain from saying it is happening deliberately. I would refrain from saying that broadcasters aren't honest in what they show. It's a sensitive matter that we need to find a, the best solution so that those perceptions or those instances are taken out of the equation so that we can then have a fully independent process of TMO review, but still reliant on the footage that broadcasters provide to us for that role. And that's the role that Stuart Berry is now looking into in depth and pulling apart for quite a couple of months. He's been busy with it in build-up to World Cup um, and to see what the options are to overcome 
those difficulties and to overcome it with the best technology available. Because the TMOs don't seem to referee at the same level yeah. or we don't see them refereeing actual games or yeah. games of that level. Quite a valid question. Um, you will probably be aware that in URC, we have at times our match officials in the TMO box. I will say this to you, that the TMO requires a different skill set from referee. It's a skill set of interpreting what you see on a screen, interpret what you see, and then relay it to a decision process where a referee environment is what the referee experience on the field with the crowd, with the pressure, understanding the environment better, which is totally different skill sets. I can share with you, and I was one of them, and I'm not using me as an example, but some referees don't like it to be TMO because they feel they don't have the skill set for that. So we try to find the people with the right skill sets and equip them with the right skill sets and develop their skill sets specifically for TMO because it is, it's an absolutely different skill set from refereeing. But the knowledge of the game and the knowledge of decision making is hugely important and overlaps in that role. But will it be ideal to have a referee that has refereed the previous week in the TMO box next week? I don't think it will be ideal. At the top end of the game, is it ideal? Is it fair to the teams? Is it fair to the individual? We have to look at all of those. But my bigger answer will be, we need to find the right people with the right skill set for the TMO role. And it's different skill sets from what referees have. It's always interesting to know what's going on behind the scenes and there'll be more insights from Tap Penny over the summer on the Welsh Rugby Podcast. But for now, goodbye.